What is up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Kings and Priests, our first episode of 2020. What's up, Dean? Hey, mate. How are you? Happy good. New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year. Did you have a good holiday? Yeah, I just didn't do much, which yeah. was nice. Uh, yeah. Had the Rona go through the house, you know, in and around. Oh, that's right. So did you get it as well? Christmases. It was, it was fun. Yeah. There you go. Did you get it or did you did you manage yeah, that? Yeah, I had some variant, you know. Okay. Through. It was pretty mild though. Yeah. I feel like more people had it than didn't. Yeah. For sure. Which I think this is a good around. thing. Everyone's yep. just got to, you know, I don't know, get the herd somehow. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, uh, it it was interesting to just see what – we traveled to Canada. So we were in right. Edmonton where it was, was 40, that, below, like, 40 below 40 below zero, which was yeah, just right. ridiculous. <laughs> but what was funny is we had to do PCR tests 48 hours before. We had to like upload all this stuff to this little app, and then they didn't even check it, which was interesting. Wow. And then they were just doing random tests on the way right. in. So I, I don't know. Maybe they just yeah. – I've got varying really degrees of, of what you go through to travel. We're, we're going to get down to Australia here in sometime in Q1. Got to see the folks. Oh, um, yeah. I bet you that's even more difficult than it, it, Canada. It, it changes every week. <laughs> yeah. So I want to ask you, we're, we're obviously at the beginning of a new year. Every podcast, every newsletter is doing their yep. 2021 wrap-up, 2022 predictions. Uh, here's the goal. Here's what our goal is. How do you or how do you think a kingdom-minded entrepreneur should approach this? Do you do it? What does that look like for you? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a New Year's resolution guy, that's for sure. I'm a, I'm a kind of I'm – a, I'm a medium when it comes to goals. I tell you what I do, though. I, I do set personal goals for myself, but I, I wouldn't say that's the driver of productivity for me. Yeah. Like you think about why you want to set a goal. You want to produce something more – you know, in some area of your life, I want to lose weight. I want to make money. I want the business to be profitable. Okay. I, I'm very practical in, in this. And so I, yesterday I was having a budget meeting uh, with the finance team and essentially they're going through 2020 and 2021 and this month and that projection and cost of goods and services, right? Your cogs. And then my operating expenses. And I said, mm -hmm. I just want to go straight to the bottom right-hand side of the spreadsheet. Yep. Yep. And I want to see what, we are projecting in 2022 to do in revenue. I want to know how, what it's going to cost to produce that revenue. And then what's my EBITDA difference at the bottom. So I, I typically go to the end of where I want to be. So let's talk 2022 revenue, right? As a goal. And I want to see the projections based on certain kind of growth metrics, right? Am I going to, you know, we, our goal is always to grow 20% year on year. As you grow as a business, that gets more difficult in the early years. Like you're growing 20, 40, 50% year on year. We had some massive spikes in the COVID, kind of early COVID jump as far as growth. But then as the any business matures, that's why it's so outstanding to me to see a company like Apple and Google still three get trillion. massive Did Apple growth. hit $3 trillion, $3 trillion dollar mean, market cap yesterday? And still growing like at a mm -hmm. ridiculous rate. So, so anyway, I go to where I want to be. And then I work backwards. How am I going to get there? And that's typically mm -hmm. how I do that whole thing. So mm -hmm. here's my goal. Here's what it's you know going to take to get there. Is that realistic? Can I put a little stretch in there? Can I sprinkle a little extra sauce to to take it a little bit more? But what am I going to be happy with at mm -hmm. the end of you know 2022 as far as revenue for my company goes? And then I just work to that and hold myself accountable to that every month, mm -hmm. and then make adjustments on the way. If we're killing it, man, I up the projection. If we're struggling, we have a bad quarter. Oh, I'm gonna, you know, 
get realistic. So that that's how I do all that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to those projections, obviously you have a team of people that are bringing you those numbers. So I guess it's, is it sort of an input from everybody? Do you guys come to a kind of decision? This is what we're going to do. This is where we're going to go and then go from there. Yeah. The, the big thing on that is, is you have to have measured well what has already happened. Mm-hmm. So you can't project with any kind of sense of accuracy unless you know exactly what's happened because what you're doing is you're saying hey you know we we did you know pick a number 10 million in revenue in 2022 well you can't project to do 30 right unless you know you did 20 so that would be a 50 percent year on year so you need to have really good records and and so you know as your business grows you're going to have access to people that that get that for you but from day one you want to put the basics in an Excel spreadsheet every mm-hmm. single month of, you know, revenue, COGS, OPEX, and then, you know, either profit or loss. Those, those mm-hmm. are big ones, right? And so you got to you got to know that, and then that, that's what you project off. And if you beat the projection, great, you take your projections up. And then there's market forces and, you know, other things that affect growth. But mm-hmm. really when it comes to business, it's all, it's one thing, it's growth. Mm-hmm. And then you pick one or two things, like every department, you know, is coming up with their goals now around one or two big things. Mm-hmm. We don't have ours is, you know, volume processed on our platform and how many new customers we sign up. They're the mm-hmm. only two things that matter in our yep. business. And most businesses are not dissimilar. You just got to work out what your two things are that produce growth and focus on those. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And where does, I mean, or, or I guess where or how does like faith come in? So I know you, yeah. you're a, a faith guy, right? I've known you for yeah. a long time and, and yeah. you operate at a level of faith. How yeah. does that intersect? Cause we want to have faith goals and especially yeah. in, you know, the stream of faith that we're in, like we're very, we're faith people. How do you balance faith and big vision with yeah. reality, pragmatism, I, and just the, the, the dashboard or the numbers that are in front of you? You know, I've evolved in this over the years. I think that where my faith is is plays a role in me as a, a business person who's growing a business, I operate less from the I'm going to use my faith to do X. Mm-hmm. It's more that, you know, maybe I'm just in the, the faith metaverse, right? I'm just, I'm just living in faith, right? And I'm waking up every day believing that I'm going to make good decisions because you can have faith all you want, but if you make bad decisions, right? Like I was talking to someone, you know, and they're kind of a bit down on generosity, right? There, and I kind of probed, and you know, their business isn't hasn't done well, and so it, it's easy to get down on things when you've had a bad experience. So I tend not to get pinpoint faith as in the, mm-hmm. kind of the classic sense of the word. I'm going to yeah. use my faith to get X. Right. I'm just going to live by faith. And which right. to me means I'm going to have faith in God mm-hmm. and have faith that I'm going to wake up every day and trust him and put him first. And then, you know, by doing the basics of what I think a, a Christian should do, that that environment that I've created in putting my trust in the Lord it, is going to come into play when I make decisions. You know, when I decide, you know, with the team about new products or new services or whatever we're doing, it's just an overall, you know, let's call it meta faith. Yeah, meta faith. I like that. Then it, well, then it just becomes like, I, I think when we maybe over-spiritualize it, or I don't want to say yeah. over-faith it, but right. then God is just no, kind of thing. like, he's just like our guru that he's going to, okay, now God's going to help me 
do X, Y, or Z, as opposed to say, I'm going to just take the tools that God has given me, live the disciplines. That's uh, how I do it. And then, yeah, yeah, that's great. And um, then I'm going to learn everything I can to make the best decision, you know, because as your company grows, you're, you're just making maybe one or two big decisions a year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe a couple of pretty big decisions a month. Let me just get all the information I can. Let me trust God. Let me steal my heart. Let me have all the information at my fingertips and then make the right decision. Be mm-hmm. fully informed, but do it, doing it trusting in God. And, and, and it goes without saying, my decisions are going to be guided by my values, which I get from, you know, who, who I believe is is supplying those values, which is which is God. So Right. No, that's great. That's a that's a really good really good perspective. I've I've just I've heard so many people and read a bunch of different stuff. People who start the year off, you know, hey, here are my giving goals, or here right. are my business building goals, or my spiritual goals. And I'm kind of the same way as you. I tend to I, I get to be. I, I guess I'm more reflective at the end of yeah, the year yeah. and the beginning of a yeah. year. But I'm the same way. I, I'm just not I'm not simple. much of a resolution guy. Exactly. Yeah. You know what are your giving goals? What did you do last year? And up it by ten percent. Right. Done. <laughs> yeah. Not a lot of time need to be wasted any more than that. <laughs> right. Right. I love that. So, okay, let's talk about this. I, I, and, I, and this is something we're going to probably talk about more as we kind of go into the year with Web3 and what does that mean for Christians yep. and what does that mean for the church? What does that mean for Christian entrepreneurs? Totally. Is it, it's going to be a thing. Is, tell you it, that. Yeah. Is, is it a thing? There was obviously a big war over the, over the holidays between the Web2 and the Web3 folks, which maybe it's my millennial cynicism. I, I just tend to look at it as a little bit of a marketing marketing ploy totally. for all those guys i, I don't necessarily i'm a baby boomer and i'm I still think the same way <laughs> but i okay so i bought my first nft a couple of days ago good for you and i i literally the, the first thing i want to say about it is it's not an easy thing to do it's a right. very complicated thing to do right and i don't How know did much you do it like what what platform did you use so i saw a tweet i discovered it on twitter which is where I think a lot of this stuff happens. And it was, it was the image that got me. It was just a, it was like a black, like credit card looking thing and a golf green with a, with a golf flag, which immediately piqued my interest. It was tweeted by Alex Lieberman, who's the founder of morning brew and was like, Oh, I just, just minted this NFT. Love those guys. It's it's, yeah. It's called the Lynx Dow. And so that's kind of what made me go, Oh, what is this? So essentially what it is, is it's this group of, I think it's right around 4,000 people online now. Okay. that are basically banding together to reimagine what a golf country club looks like. So there's a Discord server and there's going to be events, but their main goal is to buy, purchase a top 100 golf course in the United States. Oh. So that's the ultimate vision of of the goal. So I see it, I look at it, I go to the website, kind of do a little bit of look, you know, kind of a little bit of investigating on Twitter just to make sure, is this for real? And I guess all the due diligence I did was like, some pretty big folks on Twitter seem to be behind it. Let's let's play around. So I hit up a friend of mine who's has done this stuff, and he basically walked me through. You know, I have my Coinbase account. I have to open a MetaMask wallet, and right. then I got to transfer my Ethereum to my MetaMask wallet. Wow! And by, at this point, I was done. I was like, all right, I'm going to do this. So I just like took all the little amount of crypto I have, transferred right. it to Ether, Ethereum. It's point one eight Ether. Point point one eight. I yeah. there's two of them, right? So there's one that's point one eight, and then there was one oh, yeah. that was, I think point there's a leisure membership. 70. Yes, and a global. Yep. So the global one is the one I got. Don't tell my More wife about right. that. But and it's already gone up. Like it's already gone up thirty percent, I think. But I so I I get it. I download MetaMask. I go through MetaMask to OpenSea. 
where I can purchase the NFT with my Ethereum. I think it costs like $55 in gas fees. So again, I'm like, I'm a fairly technical guy and it's really yeah. difficult. Um, right. But at this point I'm in, I want to be a part of the group. Right. <laughs> and and I'm just determined I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy this thing. So I buy it and then I can't figure out, I'm like, okay, well, do I want to try and sell this? And th then I can't figure out how to sell it. So I literally have to FaceTime a friend. He's showing me how to do it. So it was just like not easy. Wow. But now I have this thing. It's pretty cool. There's a Discord server. And basically the goal of it is, can we get, you know, 5,000 people? Are there, I think it's like around 4,300 4, specific. And they're now really aggressively going after a pro golfer to essentially mint one of these. But they sold out in 24 hours. So wow. it's a pretty cool... It's a totally. pretty cool. I'm just looking through here real quick. Is is this going to be a real golf course somewhere one day? Yeah. Yeah. So oh, the idea the is that by, is that by the end of 22 they want to purchase a golf course. So the DAO um, is being created to raise money to go and buy a golf course. Exactly. Got it. Exactly. Where they want to have obviously if you're depending on, you know, what level of membership you have, you can right. have voting rights in the course, you can right. you know have x amount of, you know, free rounds of course over the course of the year, whatever. Fantasy Golf League, they're going to launch their own token, which is going to be called the Lynx token. So, you know, it's kind okay. of interesting. Yeah, so uh, again, I don't know how practical <laughs> it is, but it's fun, you know. So we'll see and the price of it's going up. So, I guess I'm just going to have to be disciplined and and not you know, right? Not and sell open it and is what the, uh, the platform that where you keep your NFTs, right? And that's where you buy them. Yeah, that's where you can buy and sell. Yeah, MetaMask is the wallet, so it's all Got it's it. all somehow connected. Still a bit over my head. Man, this time next year, we need to see how much it's worth and what happens. It, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so that was that was that was that. It was fun. Maybe I'll send you see if I can get you to to buy one of these. Yeah, huh? I gotta There's get like some. I, I sold all my Dogecoin. Like last year, so yeah. I'm I'm out on crypto right now. But I yeah, we need to on the ne next dip. I need to go get some. Okay, so the 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 other thing I want to talk about. So speaking of Alex Lieberman, who again we're both big Morning Brew fans. His his podcast, The Founder's Journey, which is essentially just like his daily journal reflections, being a founder, is really right. really good. Anybody listening, I would I would highly um, recommend it. But he tweeted something on January first this year that I thought was just a good thing to talk about today. He said, "What is the scrappiest thing you've done to will your business into existence? What's the scrappiest thing you've done to will your business into existence?" Which I thought was obviously a question I wanted to ask you, and then just like you know, yeah. talk through. I kind of went through and looked at some of the responses and some of the different stories that people linked to. And I didn't know this, but the founders of Reddit when they launched in two thousand five. They basically created hundreds of accounts and started right. just posting a bunch of content with fake users to essentially make it look like there was there already a lot people. of people on this thing. They don't need to do that now. That's no, thing. exactly. So scrappy, really scrappy. And then I came across the story of of this older guy. In fact, he's passed away now. His name's Jerry Weintraub. He was a big time producer. At one point, he was managing Bob Dylan. He kind of created John Denver. He was a producer of. Wow all the Oceans movies, but there's this story of him early in his career wanting to take Elvis on tour. And so he like tells his wife, I'm going to take Elvis on tour this year. We're going to figure it out. So he calls Elvis's manager. Elvis's manager's like, no, he's doing his thing in Vegas. He's not going on tour. It's never going to happen. So basically this guy, Jerry, decides, okay, well, one day Elvis is going to go on tour. And so right. I want to be the guy that he thinks of when that happens. Yep. So every single day at the exact se – seven days a week, for at the exact same time, every single day, this guy, yep. Jerry Weintraub, called Elvis's manager. Sometimes it would be a two-minute conversation. Sometimes it would be a 10-minute one, and, and they kind of became right. came friends. And then something like a year and a half later, 
uh, he calls and the manager's, you know what? I actually think we can make something happen. Wow. Uh, but you got to meet me in Vegas in 24 hours and you got to have a million dollars cash uh, to pay <laughs> up front for it. And then it goes into the story of how he did it. But I thought this was a guy who was already really successful, right. but he had just had his mindset on this yeah. new level that he wanted to go to and kind of willing to well, do you said something whatever right it took. That is, so you think of what scrap, the word scrappy is, you know, persistence and willing to absolutely never give up on something that you really believe you could do and not always having the resources at hand to maybe do it if it's presented, but you just never stop trying, right? So I think, you know, just think about most entrepreneurs have many failures before they hit a success. Mm -hmm. And a success is defined in many, all different ways. But, you know, I, I just think the whole essence of being an entrepreneur is that you don't take no for an answer. The first rule in sales is when someone declines the sale, you didn't even hear it. Yep. So when they yep. say, no, I don't want that. I don't even hear it. You're trained. Mm -hmm. All the great old sales guys like Zig Ziglar mm -hmm. and all yep. these guys that, you know, I kind of grew up at, you know, they were kind of my mentors in sales is you're not even, you know, I remember selling real estate and the big thing in real estate is to get the listing. Right. And once, once you get the listing, like you, you can sell them, which is great. You might, yep. but really you get listings, man, and everyone's selling them for you and you're making money forever. I would just, I would pound the doors, you know, and literally with a contract in my back pocket and say, Hey, you know, can I give you a free appraisal? And, and, you know, do you want to see your house? And I have my spiel and they'd, they'd say no. And I just keep, you know, I'd say, man, this is a beautiful front garden. I, I, I just think this is wonderful. But no, we're not interested in selling, you know, the, down the street, these guys just got, you know, X amount of money for, no, 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 we're not really um thinking about this at this time. And, you know, what's happening in the shopping center up the street that's getting built is going to, and it's literally the amount of times I would, you know, kind of friendly with a smile on your face. You don't want to be a kind of jerk about it. And there are a lot of times where I, from the first no to the third or fifth no, I, I got in and gave them an appraisal. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so that's, that's the, that's the whole essence. It's interesting right. you, you tell that story because I led a sales team. How I ended up leading a sales team, I actually have no idea. I was like 26 years old, and I guess I was just like the guy that was around that they paid yeah. the least. And <laughs> instead of going to find somebody, they said, hey, we're going to have Michael do it. But I did right. a bunch of research on, and this was probably 2015, uh, no, 2014, on sales. And basically, Harvard Business Review did a study of a 1,000 salespeople across basically every industry. So stockbrokers, right. real estate agents, door-to-door -door salesmen, and they followed them for five years to try and determine what were the couple things, was there anything you know, in between all of them, these high performers that right. kind of stuck? Uh, and there was two things. One was they didn't stick to the script, so they were adaptive. In other words, right. they didn't just go in with their token, here are the five things I'm gonna say. They were able to kind of like adapt in the moment and yep. steer the conversation the way the conversation needed to be steered. But yep. the second thing was their ego was so high, and not their ego like I'm great, but they right. hated to lose so much yep. that when they got a no, instead of being discouraged, it kind of was just like an opportunity for them to try again. Yep. And, and yep. that was literally the only two things was right. essentially completely unwilling to accept no and just keep yep. going, which I thought Love was really it. interesting. Totally. Um, and if you're a founder out there and you're not, like usually if you're a technical skilled person or a people type person, right? They're the mm -hmm. two things. When I think about, <clears throat> you know, Barn, my son, he's the technical genius, right? Who, mm -hmm. who writes code and builds applications. 
you know, I'm good with people and I'm good at talking. So I'm automatically the sales guy. If you, if you're not like, that's why you should have co-founders. This is a little side thing, tangent here. You can't do it all yourself. You're usually good at one of those two. You're either technical or people pick what you're good at and then find a partner who's good at the other thing. And that's typically what allows you a, a higher, higher kind of percentage of success. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Was there anything early days of Tithely or anything else that you've done over the years, maybe a story or an idea, just, hey, this was something we did that was really scrappy that you look back on and go, oh man, that was a, a like a turning point. Yeah. The, like the original giving app that, that Bond built was like plumbed and bolted <laughs> together on seven different platforms. We, we were really ahead of the technology to be able to do what we wanted to do. But even before that, trying to get a recurring giving on a website was really hard to do. And there was these legacy type payment companies that just made it so difficult. And, you know, we just used like 14 different technologies to kind of bolt it together and then took the risk on, on, you know, showing it to people and hoping it worked. And it worked about 50% of the time. Like the original app didn't work every time. It was, <laughs> it was so bad, <laughs> but you know, there's these people like they want to spend three years building the product, but then meantime, scrappy people that just put products in markets and, and mm-hmm. take the heat from mm-hmm. customer support and just get well, through and then just get quickly iterating. Yep. And the three-year guy who's done the perfect one is being crushed by the guys who are in the market making their product better. And eventually they have a product that's perfect. Like, right. And, and because not- they're the ones, they're the ones learning, right? Yeah, they're, they're exactly. not. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I remember when we were, this company I had in, in was building in Vegas, we, our CEO, who again, I mean, he was the founder of 10, 12 companies, you know, like uber, uber successful. Right. And the whole business was an interactive digital network inside of taxi cabs. Yeah. And he, whenever he had, whether it be a client or whether he himself started to doubt, is the product working? Uh, is it good? So to prove to himself, to prove to the team and to prove to the clients, he would literally go spend 12 hours, do overnights in taxi cabs, sitting in the front seat next to the cab driver. And the person would get in the cab and the cab driver would say, oh, this is so-and-so. He's just here training. Don't worry about him. Right. And they would do the full cab ride. And, and he would make all of us do this. We would do this three, four nights oh. a week at one point. And then at the end of the ride, he would turn around to the, to, the, to the passenger and say, hey, by the way, you know, I've got this company where the people with the screens in the cab. Can I, can I ask you five questions about the content you just saw? Right. And I'll, I'll pay you 20 bucks. And he would do this to 30, 40, 50 people a night. Yep. Write down the notes in his phone, ask them Love about it. the product, the content, yep. and you would get you know an email from him at five in the morning with a list of forty different things yep. that was feedback from real customers, and that was so he could go to the client and say, not only is this working, right. this is the kind of content that's working, this is how it's working, um, and I just always remember looking back at that and going, okay, here's a guy who's like willing to do whatever it takes to Absolutely. make this business work. Well, um, I think it's called eating your own dog food, right? What what you're building or what you're producing, you need to go use it and you need to talk to customers who are using it and find out, uh, you know, what's going on. I love that. Yeah. Okay. So, so next let's talk about, there's a couple of different articles I want to talk about that kind of came up over the last couple of weeks, really about, and I've actually seen more of this this year than I think I have in the past, just conversation around the essentially the market for technology with evangelicals. So there was this piece in the Atlantic right. last week um, called why evangelicals are adopters of new tech. And essentially the way into the article was this piece about a pastor actually in Los Angeles who has been doing 
VR church for a, a number of years. And so yeah. it was kind of like, I think it looks like 2012, the article says, has been, he's guys been doing some version of it. And so obviously with Meta, Facebook changing its name to Meta, yeah. this big conversation of the metaverse. But the thesis of the article is essentially in the digital era, evangelicals have continued to embrace media technologies as they have entered the zeitgeist. They often talk Evangelicals often talk about how they are called to be in but not of the world, which means they feel the need to use the technologies of culture to spread their own message and values. So and kind of she paints this history of even over the last hundred years, how, right. how Christians have been kind of on the forefront of adopting new um, absolutely new technologies. So, <clears throat> I mean, I have a lot to say about this because this is kind of my world. We build a lot of tech for churches. A, a couple thoughts. I would say there's segments of the church, and we know the church is, you know, broadly under, you know, the lordship of Jesus Christ. But then we've got all these denominations, and some of those denominations move faster than others when it comes to technology. And it's interesting to me that the ones that are still growing are the ones who embrace technology. That's number one. Number two is that not all technology is going to solve the problem of a hurting world that needs to hear the gospel. It, it can help. It certainly can make it easy. But I think overall, when forward-thinking church leaders embrace technology, look at what Life Church has done with the Bible app. Mm -hmm. I went to their headquarters uh, a couple of years ago, and they got this map, kind of like the, the famous Google map, where you know they're showing all these searches all over the world. And they, they could tell where people had you know opened the app and reading the Bible. And, and like the guy said, look, look there. And that's North Korea. Wow. And the Bible app is open mm -hmm. in North mm -hmm. Korea, right? Which is arguably the most closed down China. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So you think about the impact of what technology can have. It's just massive. So A, you got to embrace it. But the other kind of side of it is that technology cannot do what New Testament Christianity can do, and that is in real life through touch and feel and community, help people be transformed. You cannot tell me that a meta experience in worship is the same mm -hmm. as being in a building with a thousand other people worshiping Jesus and that feeling that you have. And now, depending on your stream, some people think, well, that's the Holy Spirit touching your heart some people think well, that's just emotions whatever it is mm -hmm. some people like, it's I just the it's the accountability of showing up right there's that you know um, yeah. but whatever it is i have to believe it's the holy spirit but whatever yep. it is the feeling is good mm -hmm. and the feeling is uplifting mm -hmm. and you come out of those even if you're a cynic mm -hmm. you come out of that experience better feeling mm -hmm. great Mm -hmm. closer to God. Okay. So there's <clears throat> all the things that happen in person that cannot be substituted by AR, VR, or, you know, whatever the, else is coming. And so as much as I love technology to, for evangelism, I don't believe technology is the best platform for discipleship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that would be my two distinctions. Use tech to evangelize, use, you know, biblical church, which is in person, the rubbing together, iron sharpening iron, utilizing of gifts, giving, growing, all of that, it, it, discipleship, the tools can help, but the real job of discipleship is uh, has to be done in person. But those are my two distinctives. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I mean, I totally agree. I mean, as a pastor, right, who pastors a local church congregation over a pandemic, there's Brutal. literally no comparison, 
it's absolutely totally. brutal and you can you know you can have quadruple the amount of people watching you online that are yep. showing up in person but at the end of the yep. day it's the people that are showing up in person that are like you said having the experience building the relationship and nothing replaces that one of the things i see and you know I, the last thing i want to do is offer a critique but i think for for people in churches who are trying to think through online and what that looks like i do think the natural instinct is to just replace, try and make the online experience as close to the in-person experience as we can, as just a bit of an extra add-on. I think the churches that I've seen that are doing it really well are almost treating online as something completely different. Like right. you said, it's it's evangelistic. Yeah. We're not trying to replicate the in-person experience, but we're using yeah, like, it for specific things. Um, right. P pandemics notwithstanding, right? We were mm -hmm. forced into online through pandemics. That's going to pass. And... You know, my fear is, is that the, it's like, um, working from home, right? There were some really great things about working from home that may not ever go away. Productivity increased. People were happy and not being stuck in traffic two hours a day, like you are in Los Angeles mm -hmm. and other places. And so there was all this positive upside, you know, business is going to work it out. Church, we were all forced online because they were, and man, we, we sell websites that have built in online. You just plug in YouTube and the giving buttons right there. We provide the stuff. So, you know, a hundred percent into it, but take the pandemic out is what's it, what's church going to look like in five years. There's going to be meta churches. You're going to go visit. You're going to put on your, your goggles and. I saw 6 million Oculus headsets were sold for Christmas. That yep. dropped me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the app you know, was the top the top downloaded app for the whole week of Christmas. The Oculus right? app. Yep. That was shocking to me. So it's coming. I think we just need to be really careful as people who are you know, trying to build the kingdom on the earth. Mm -hmm. We don't get too caught up in that. This is not a digital kingdom. Right. This is, this is the kingdom of God being built on the earth because it's made up of people. And people who are separated by technology is that is not the church. Mm -hmm. So I'll just I'll just you know throw that out there mm -hmm. that let's embrace it and use it to reach the world, mm -hmm. but let's bridge people back into the real life experiences of mm -hmm. what growing together is. And I think that's a good um, a good application for anyone that's maybe in a church. You're an entrepreneur. You're trying to figure out a way to serve, or you're a pastor yep. who thinks really entrepreneurially, and you're thinking about the digital and products and online it's what's the utility that you need it to serve right so and then yeah how does it how can we arrange kind of build all this to ultimately funnel back to at least making a case to people that the yep. way to best experience this is in person with community as opposed to just building a cool church tech product for church tech product sake right yeah yeah and then i mean and we spend a lot of time thinking how do we engage the church member with technology but with an end to so i think look it's going to take a while because this, you know, the pandemic is still, it's, it's like the 08 market crash, mm -hmm. right? No one ever wanted to buy real estate ever again for three years and prices were suppressed. No homes were built. And I mean, it was a tough three year market in the real estate business. You know, unfortunately, or fortunately, if you stayed in real estate and you kept your house and you hung in there, you were rewarded later and look what's happening now. The point is people go back to things that you know, for a season look like they aren't cool or good anymore and people are going to go back to church. So mm -hmm. you need to make sure your infrastructure is, you know, sh shaped up digitally, but you better make sure your infrastructure to pastor and care for and grow and disciple and teach and worship in person is is in order too because it, it's going to return mm -hmm. more than pre-pandemic 
pre-pandemic, pre-pandemic levels, I believe. I think it's going to surge. Yeah. Because it's going to be such a, a desire for people to get back in community. Yeah. I, I love that example you made, you know, about like after 2008, sort of that like n- nuclear winter of, yep. you know, nobody's buying real estate. There's no investment sure. going into that. My question is, I, I think it's, and not to get on a tangent, but I think it's actually really relevant to what we're talking about now and the people that are listening. So if we're in that time in church, which I think we are, I mean, I don't go a day without seeing some new study online about pastors right. leaving the ministry, dealing with mental health issues, trying right. to That's- legitimately thinking about wanting to do something else with their totally. life. I told um, them like nearly every day. Yeah. So it's a difficult time. How would you, I guess, encourage, or what are some practical tips that you would give, let's say an entrepreneur who's in a local church who maybe has or doesn't have a relationship with their pastor, but is in some form of community in right. a local church. And you oh do this gosh. so well for us um, <clears throat> and have done this so well for us uh, as a part of our community, just being there to encourage us, challenge yeah. us, help us. What would you say, what can somebody do now to support their community, support their pastor who is you know, in the business world? Number one, get back in the building, mm-hmm. go to church, get, wake your family up on a Sunday morning, mm-hmm. get your kids in the car and go to church. That would be the that would be the number one thing that your pastor wants right now. Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. People in the seats. So mm-hmm. could could you do that twice a month, please? Mm-hmm. Amen. You know, obviously, Amen. Obviously I'm gonna loop that. I'm gonna loop that one just uh, right, throughout yeah. the whole pot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah, get back in church and then things like serving and you know, all the things like just start to come back again. And then obviously, you know, any encouragement you can give to church leadership at this point, it would be very valuable. But really it's it's gonna be getting back in church. That mm-hmm. would be the number one thing. Because that mm-hmm. That is going to send a message, right? I value this. This is important to me and my family. Mm-hmm. I'm out of this habit because I've been doing online church on and off for 18 months. And just by being there, that's going to be the number one encouragement to church mm-hmm. leaders. I love that. That's really great. So talking about evangelicals in tech and just kind of the digitization of all of this, and it's it just funny. It's like Silicon Valley has like awoken to the fact that there are millions and millions of Christians in the world (laughs) and and in America, especially as a marketplace, especially since the pandemic. So there was a Wall Street Journal article on December 21st, um, essentially saying this religion apps attract wave of venture investment. So faith-based for-profit apps attracted 175 million in venture funding this year through mid-December, which was uh, up well, almost uh, almost over triple from 2020, and you know, in 2016 was only 6.1 million. So a lot of these are basically a lot of more content based apps. So Hallow yep. is one that is a sort of a Catholic prayer meditation app. There was another one that just got announced, Glorify, that raised money through A16. And so this is you know happening. There's a bunch of different apps. Obviously, you would have founded and led one of sort of the 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 larger faith based businesses kind of in this space. What's your perspective on that? Is it a, is it a sector that's just really hot right now? Do you see? Um... We're talking two things, right? We're talking mm-hmm. B2B, mm-hmm. which is, you know, digital products and services to the customer, which is the church. And then there's a, you know, a consumer market, right? Pray.com, these apps where you meditate and pray and go to sleep and all that stuff. So there's, there's two kinds of products. I would encourage, so there's two markets there, the church market, which there's about 350,000 churches in the US and probably double that for the rest of the world. So let's call the total TAM of churches around the world yep. that you can sell stuff to, you know, is in is, you know, six, seven hundred thousand customers, which in a in a like a B2C environment, it's not that many. 
right? So, so you've got to have, you know, this product and that market is getting saturated mm-hmm. and there's going to be, there's been consolidation going on and there will be more consolidation. Consolidation means companies will merge, companies will be bought by other companies. And I think that is going to keep happening. Um, and then if, but I would encourage, you know, entrepreneurs who are thinking about the market of, you know, let's call it a hundred million Christians in America. That's a really big market, right? You think about the music industry, the Christian music industry, you know, that's five or six times the secular music industry of Australia, just the Christian market here, right? So, so uh, is, are there opportunities to sell things to Christians? Absolutely. But you got to decide, am I going to do a B2B thing? Am I going to develop a product that a business, i.e. a church, which is a business, and functions kind of in the same way as any other business does, brings mm-hmm. money in, puts money out, tries not to go broke, or am I going to sell something to a consumer that mm-hmm. might be identified as a Christian? So those are two markets that are big, and there's opportunity in both. Mm-hmm. How do you think, do you think that money is going to continue flowing? And again, I can, you know, I don't want you to say, I'm not asking you to critique any of these companies that got any of this money or anything like that, but. I know most of where the money went. Yep. Yep. How do you see that playing out? I mean, I mean, look, VCs will continue to invest in verticals. Mm-hmm. Okay, so here's the vertical, the church market, either the you know B two B play or the B two C play. VC money will flow to where profits will be derived. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's just the bottom line. Mm-hmm. So, and there's different stages of companies. We've talked about that before. You go from seed to A, B, C onwards. Do you go public? There's whole funds that exist that have you know, groups of Christian software companies grouped in them and that they are a, you know, a private equity kind of led mostly fund of Christian technology, right? So overall, my prediction is, is that there will be consolidation over the next five years and you'll have three or four winners mm-hmm. and that will service the market. And then like anything else, they will dominate for a period of time until one or two of them drop the ball and someone scrappy comes along and invent something new and, you know, enters the market. But I think the cycle in, when you look at the cycle of, of these things is we're in the consolidation part of this, which will have a few winners that will dominate. So in the consolidation part of that, does that mean that companies like Tithely are always just kind of like eyes up, looking around, going, who's out there creating value that we would like to, sure. I mean, what does that it, look like? Oh, it, well, here's, here's just a, a point, right? If you're in other in words, what can people do? What can people build now so that you want to buy them in yeah, 18, yeah, yeah. 18 months? So here's what here's what a smart operator does. You know what your competition is doing, mm-hmm. you know what they're building, and you are looking what the new guys are building and what's bubbling up over here and, and what's where's what's the buzz, right, in your vertical. And and you're you're either gonna build it or you're gonna buy it but you can't sit on the sideline and not dive into things that are going to be dominant at some point in your vertical. So note to self as a, as a business builder, always know, you know, I don't know who said it, but the paranoid survive, right? Mm -hmm. You got to know what everyone's doing Mm -hmm. and uh, and that creates opportunity largely. Yep. Yep. Awesome. Well, um, Hey, before we close today, let's, I want to do a couple startup terms. I got actually a lot of feedback from folks saying just how practical and helpful that was. So I think maybe we'll kind of try and do a couple of these every episode. And then from time to time, we'll do a a full episode. So a couple of these today, let's do a, so CAC customer acquisition cost. Talk to me about customer acquisition. cost. That is my favorite one. Okay. Because 
once you is the cost of acquiring a customer, right? What's it going to cost me through wages I pay to staff, technology or, or you know, kind of stuff I have to use to, to create that marketing, sales, right? What's, what does it cost me? And there's certain parts, you know, you don't really count your R&D. You don't really count your called GNA, right? General and administrative expenses. It's mostly in the sales and marketing bucket that I've spent to go and get a customer. And so knowing that is critical for many reasons, but the main reason, and at least to the next one, which is the lifetime value, if it costs me a thousand dollars to get a customer, right? In Google ads, in sales people in, you know, phones and email lists and all the stuff, right? In my sales and marketing, if it cost me a thousand bucks to get a customer and the other term, which we could spend time on another day, how long does it, does it pay? How long does it take to pay back that cost? Right? So if I sell a product that, that is, gets me a hundred bucks a month from a customer, it costs me a thousand bucks. That's taking me 10 months to repay that, that marketing spend. And then the, if the lifetime value is, you know, call it 6000 or $10,000, right? Would I, would I spend, if I could, $1,000 as many times a month as I could to get those customers at that metric? Well, of course I would. Mm-hmm. If I could spend 1000 and get 10000 return over 10 years, like I would do that. I would get, find the biggest bucket of money I could find mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I would perfect. Now it's really hard to, this is you know, really hard to do, right? To build the product and find a way that I can market it and sell it at a cost-effective way that is going to bring out kind of return that we're talking about. But once you find that, that is like mining in the 1840s you know, mm-hmm. and striking gold. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because once you discover that, so understanding what it costs you to get a customer is really critical in the path to scale mm-hmm. because you can then determine after a little while your lifetime value, which we can talk about next, mm-hmm. and then, you know, payback periods and all these kinds of things. And you basically, that's what venture money, that's what people will give you money for. Mm-hmm. You know, you've bootstrapped a, a business for two years and you've developed a product that you can sell and it costs you 500 bucks to sell it, but it's going to make 5000 you'll get a lot of money to go and scale it up. Mm-hmm. And so keeping an eye on understanding those costs within your sales and marketing spend, what it's cost you to acquire a customer is really critical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's almost like that the, the, the lower the cost to acquire a customer and mm-hmm. the longer LTV or lifetime value of the customer are yeah. two really important metrics um, to understand, but also just keep kind of, what's the word I'm trying to look for? keep hacking away at, right? How, and look, the software the, that does all this for you, there's all mm-hmm. these kind of formulas that do it. But yeah, and, and, and it's affected by things like churn and like all, all the, you know, and if your costs start to go up to acquire a customer, if it gets really competitive, I mean, you know, that's a decision you got to make. Do I, would I spend $1,500 to go get this $10,000 lifetime customer? Yeah, still do it. Right, but you've got to really keep a close eye on all these metrics. But mm-hmm. it's critical for businesses that can scale to know what it costs you to get a customer and what they're going to be worth mm-hmm. ultimately as, as a customer going forward. How often um, do you revisit these two things? Obviously, as growth happens, as new technologies come up, as you guys innovate, as you expand, how often are you re-looking at each one of these I mean, lifetime value and CAC? 
yeah, we look, you know, I wouldn't say every day, but every month I'm in a meeting where we are closely scrutinizing what it costs, our spend. And we spend a lot of like millions of dollars on like Google AdWords. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we, you know, we are very, very focused. And if we see the cost going up and the customer increase, like the customer's not, like Stephen's saying, flat is, is bad. That means you're going backwards. We, we, we spend a lot. Of, I spend as much time on that side of stuff as I do on the, the financial health of the company because it's the two are linked. Right. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So last, let's just talk about this briefly. Talk yeah. about cap table. Yeah. What exactly is that? What does that mean? You hear, you know, people say things like, I got a clean cap table. I got a messy yeah, cap yeah. table. I got a big one, a small one. Talk to me about what, what that is. A cap table is. is essentially an Excel spreadsheet that lists everybody who owns shares and what percentage they own. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you start a business with you and your partner, it's, man, you guys are 50% each. And then down the track, someone comes along and says, you know, I'm going to value this company a million bucks. I'm going to give you a hundred grand. I'm going to buy 10%. You go, yep, I'm going to take that hundred. Here's 10% of my business. Now he owns 10 and you own 45 each. And then down the road, the business keeps growing and that guy wants to ante up and say, here's a half a million, but now the business is worth 5 million. And so he buys another 10% and on and on. So a cap table is a record. It's a register of who owns shares and how much percentage of their own. So if in one day the company goes public and you still own, now you're going to get diluted over time as more money comes in and you start issuing stock options to, you know, employees and all the things, there's dilution that occurs. You try to minimize it. But, you know, if, if you held, what did Peter Thiel have of Facebook that he put in his 401k by the yeah. way, tax-free? Completely uh, tax-free. Yeah. Right. And, but he still had, he, I don't know what it was, one or 2%, but it was worth, <laughs> Billions, billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's the power of venture. Mm-hmm. And that's why these 100, 200, $500 million funds invest all this money in startups because you're going to have ones that pay off, hopefully in your fund, that become unicorns, billion dollar plus, and that mm-hmm. you know is a pretty big return. So, yeah, we use a company called Carta, C-A-R-T-A, and they, that does all the crunching for us because it does get complex down the track. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Well, awesome. Well, this was fun. Great start to the year. Thanks for listening. And hey, listen, if you're listening today and you're enjoying the conversation, do us a favor, share it around. Who do you know that would love to listen and love to learn? Go ahead and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube. You can follow us on Instagram at Kings and Priests Podcast, Kings and Priests Pod on Twitter. And hey, leave us a review. Give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It is such a massive help. And uh, I'm excited. We got some big interviews coming up over the next couple of months that are going to be a lot of fun. And we'll see you back next week. 